This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and FPC Gulfport on YouTube. As we begin this morning, I am thinking of a number. Does anyone know what that number is? Now, you might guess, you might try to deduce it on the basis of what you know about me. You might say, well, what is he like? What's he bound to be thinking about? What's his birth date? Maybe there's a number that's derived from that. What's his age? Which is 25, if you're wondering. Yeah. <laughs> you might wonder about these sort of things, and you might try to figure it out and guess what number's in my brain by trying to understand what you know about me. Maybe you would say, well, you know, he's into theology. If it's a number between 1 and 100, I don't know, maybe 95, the 95 thesis. That's the way our minds would work. We would try to guess. We would try to deduce based on whatever clues that we might have. We use our intellect to try to figure these sorts of things out. So that's one option. If this morning I'm thinking of a number between 1 and 100, you could try to guess based on whatever clues you think that I might be presenting. That's one option. A second option is this. You could just ask me. You could just ask me. You see, the use of reason can deduce all manner of things in the world around us. We apply our reason and our intellect to get by from day to day, and it serves us quite well. However... There's an important caveat when it comes to our reason. Our reason is always going to be limited by the amount of data that we have access to. And there's things that you cannot apprehend or know simply by your reason alone. And sometimes we need a source external to ourselves to tell us things that we could otherwise not figure out. Again, you could just ask me what the number is that I would be thinking of. In a nutshell, this is the difference between what you might call the approach of philosophy versus the approach of theology. Philosophy tries to map reality on the basis, first and foremost, of reason, and secondly, on the basis of experience. Philosophy tries to answer deep, deep questions, like what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why do we exist? Philosophy tries to answer those good and important questions, but it does so through an intellectual grid. Its borders are its own reason or experiences. Conversely, theology goes straight to the source. It asks God. If you want to know what the meaning of life is, you could ask Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and the like. You could get all sorts of advanced degrees in philosophy and the natural sciences and so forth. Or, on the other hand, you could flip to Ecclesiastes 12.13 and read this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And that's just one verse. There's others. But if you want to know why you exist, if you want to know why a creator created you, ask the creator. And in our case, we don't have to ask a thousand questions just casting them up to the sky like trial balloons, hoping that he might answer any given one of them. He's given us the answers for every major question you'll ever ask about life and existence and the like have been addressed in some principal way in his book. Special revelation. God has spoken. God has given us wisdom from on high. Our creator has mapped out reality for us. The problem we've got is that we're usually not satisfied with that. Or we reduce his word to just one competing voice among many. Most often the reason we don't like what God has said, or the reason we reject what God has said, is because it flies contrary to what we want to think about ourselves. About our own autonomy, or our choices, or the things we do, or the things we don't do, or what have you. The world around us has no place for God and his word. It doesn't even consider it one of 20 competing options. It just removes the possibility altogether. If someone tries, if someone tries to explain reality to you or to your kids, apart from the revelation that God has given through his son, through his spirit, through his word, then the apostle Paul would tell you this, that that individual is cheating you. Not falling short, not misinforming you, 
cheating you. When children are told repeatedly by entire institutions that they're a byproduct of cosmic chance, as people try to explain reality to them through the natural sciences and like, apart from the hand of a creator God, as folks try to tell kids to go and do moral things without pointing to a moral source, the source of all morality, they're not just misinforming these children. They are actively cheating them. And that's what Paul warns us in verse 8 of today's text. He says, beware, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men and not according to Christ. You're going to listen to somebody. You're being discipled by somebody. Your children are being discipled by somebody. The question is who? All right, this morning, let's look at verses 1 through 3. This is Paul's warning to the church in Colossae. Obviously, it has application to us as well. But let's look at verses 1 through 3. Let's try to understand why he was saying that to this particular church, and then we'll work our way forward from there. Verses 1 through 3. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. The things that Paul is going to write about are heavy on his heart. He knows what the people are going through. He knew men and women very, very well. And he knew that the hurts and temptations they were inclined to, and he knew the lies they were inclined to buy into. And so he says in verse 1, I want you to know. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are written all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. All right, at the start of this text, Paul again, he's reminding the Colossian church that although they're hundreds of miles apart, that he is concerned for them. They were not out of sight, out of mind. They were heavy on his heart. He was thinking about them, and he was praying for them. Now, this was not a church that he had planted. In fact, the majority of those who would read these words, he had never even met face to face, which is what he acknowledges in verse 1. And yet, he was concerned about them. He was concerned about people he hadn't even met. This is the heart of Paul. And out of his concern is intimated this idea that he's praying for them. Now, let me ask you, what sort of prayers do you think Paul would have been offering? And we pray for one another all the time. we got a lot of things that we pray about. What sort of prayers would Paul, what would he have been worried about the people in Colossae? Now, he would have been worried about their health conditions, absolutely. There was people in his own community, people in Colossae, people in Thessalonica, people in Berea, people who had health issues. That would have been on his heart and mind. Absolutely, that would have been a focus. Beyond that, what do you think he would have been praying about? Do you think he was praying for their wealth and prosperity? Do you think he was praying for their best life now? Well, maybe. I'm sure there was components of these things that he wanted these people to have, but that's not what we see here. Even if he prayed for all of that, and then some, what we see here is the apex of what his prayer life was for the people. What did he want most for them? Was it riches? No. Was it health? No. He prayed, in verses 2 and 3, for their knowledge, attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. All right. If you're keeping track, I'm not going to try to count those up, but wisdom, knowledge, understanding, these are repeated words. He's talking to the people in Colossae. He's telling them what he desires most for them, and that's it. He wants them to know. He wants them to understand. He wants them to have wisdom about what it is they believe and discernment with regards to the world around them. You know, when I pray for my own children, I don't think I've ever once prayed for the future car they'll drive. 
I don't think I've ever prayed once about the house they might someday own or the nature of their bank accounts. However, I've prayed for what goes into the heart and mind you know, a million times. In essence, that's what Paul is saying about people in Colossae. When I pray for my kids, I want them to know God. I want God to know them. I want there to be a, a relationship between the two and a growing and a thriving relationship. I want that more than I want anything else for them. Even if life should throw them a thousand curveballs, even if life should deprive them of health and wealth and prosperity and the like, I want them to know Christ. I trust you and me who are parents that we have the same desire for our children. It was Paul's desire for the people in Colossae as well. I want you to know God. I want you to have understanding of these deep mysteries. I want you to grow in your wisdom of the one who has made you. That's my desire for you. Pastorally, I hope you know that's my desire for you as well. That you would know Christ. That you know increasingly better. That you would know him better next week than you knew him today. That's a good and noble objective. As a parent, though, again, I want my children to be wise and knowledgeable about God. I also want them to be wise and knowledgeable about God because I know the nature of the enemy that is out there. And I know this. He's not coming for their bank accounts. He's not coming for their cars. He's not coming for their houses. He's coming for their hearts and their minds. You and I who are parents, it is the same for your children. And the enemy, the spiritual enemy, he won't play fair. He won't wait till like they're, you know, 20 before he starts messing with them. He'll mess with them when they're small. All the more reason you need to put a hedge around them. You need to protect them. You need to watch out for them. Paul has that same concern for his spiritual children in Colossae. All right, let's look at our next verses, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, now this I say lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For although I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Have you ever been out car shopping or furniture shopping or something, and you have a salesman you know, approach you, and the salesman will ask qualifying questions to get to know you a little bit better. And if you play coy, ultimately he's going to try to get to the point where he'll ask you something like this. What do I have to do? What do I have to say to put you in this car today? What do I have to say in order to persuade you? What the salesman, saleswoman is looking for is some want or need that you profess that can be leveraged in order for him or her to close the deal. Now, persuasion, persuasion, it typically appeals to something in the heart of the one you're trying to persuade. Persuasion only works if what you're offering is enticing to the one you desire to persuade. If you want your child to do their homework, and let's say you shouldn't do this, this would be bad parenting, but let's say in order to get your kid to want to do their homework, let's say you offered a slice of chocolate cake. You say, if you do this, if you one more page of math, you get that cake. Well, that may, that may be an incitement, an inducement, a persuasion. They might go, okay, well, I'd like the cake. All right, I'll do it. What if you offered celery? (laughs) You already know what I'm thinking about celery. It's not going to be the same. It's not going to incite, induce, persuade. For me, it would just turn me off completely from the the whole project. With that said, persuasion leverages your wants, leverages your wants in order to prompt you to undertake some given action. Persuasion leverages something that you want in your heart in order to cause you or prompt you to do something. In the garden, that's the way it worked. Think in the garden. You have Adam and Eve, and Eve's off you know, doing her thing there in the garden, and the serpent comes. What did the serpent do? Did the serpent come up and you know, sink the teeth in and bite her on the leg there? Well, no. Did the serpent coil himself around her neck? Well, well no. The serpent didn't attack with its teeth or with its strength. It attacked with its words. An attempt to persuade 
Eve to do something on the basis of some desire that she may have had. If you eat of this fruit, you can be like God. Now that's better than chocolate cake in the eyes of many. If you eat this fruit, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. God just doesn't want you to do this because then you'll be like him. And he thought, well, that sounds reasonable enough. And she gave it a go. In verse 3, Apostle Paul is telling us, look, you and I, we're not smarter than Eve. We're not smarter than the people in Colossae. And in verse 3, he says, we're all in the same danger. He says, this I'm telling you, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Persuasive words are the arrows that are aimed from the devil's quiver to your heart. The thing is, though, we think we're above and beyond that, right? You and I think that, like, people in the Old Testament, early church, there's, you know, hillbilly bumpkins, you know, unenlightened people, but we got this figured out, right? We spent our time in studies and in college and all sorts of things that they didn't have back then. We're shrewder and smarter. We can detect the enemy's efforts to persuade us. Can you? Do you have any idea how much space the enemy has rented in your heart? Pastorally speaking, I've been doing this long enough to know that the enemy has sunk his teeth into the calves of the average Christian far more than we'll admit to far more than we'll let on. So when you hear these words, don't just think they apply to some hillbilly bumpkin 2,000 years ago. This is God speaking to us and saying, look, what voices have we allowed to speak wisdom, air quotes, into our heart and into our life? What have we bought into? What are we allowing the enemy to do with our children? Well, I again have some understanding of this, having done this for some period of time, and it's not a small amount. It's far more than we think or otherwise acknowledge. In the case of the Colossians, the words that they were hearing included a number of false teachings, just about reality in general, but also about God. There were those in Colossae, as there were those in Thessalonica, as there was those in Philippi and Ephesus and the like who were leading folks astray. Now, were they rejecting Jesus outright? Now, no. Were they telling Christians, were the false teachers coming in with their smiles, their songs and the like, and telling them to go worship Baal or Asherah? No. That's not so much what was going on. What was going on was a blending of worldly philosophy and beliefs with the existing beliefs and doctrines of Christianity. If you think of it as you got a good Christian Orthodox doctrine, you know, a stew of Orthodox doctrine, and it's the seasoning. It's the seasoning of false and worldly and pagan beliefs and priorities that has the net effect of changing the composition of the stew. I don't know anything about cooking, but I'll bet this much. I can't walk up to whatever soup or stew my wife is making and just put anything on top of it, blend it in. It might look the same. I'll bet you it tastes somewhat different. This is true in matters of faith. It's true in matters of theology. You can't just add anything. You can't just season 2,000-year-old doctrine with progressive postmodern viewpoints and priorities and think you're going to end up with the same thing you started with. You absolutely will not. You know, most attacks on the church, they don't involve a battering ram at the door. The devil doesn't need it. Again, when the devil comes for you or for your family, it won't be with his fangs, it won't be with his teeth, it will be with his words. Let's look at our next verses, verses 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Has anyone ever planted a tree here? I don't know how many trees you've planted. I have not planted many. I'm not a gardener. I don't have any green thumbs. But I know this much. I know that soil matters. I know that soil is relevant to the health and the future of the tree that is being planted. A tree that's planted in good soil can thrive and grow even when the winds come, even when the winter sets in. However, if the soil's bad, the roots aren't deep, then the tree is subject to falling over. Now, it might not be the first year or the second year, or what have you. But given enough time, if the soil is bad, the tree can't stand. A wind will blow, it'll topple. 
In the same way, if you take a healthy tree and go to its base, to its root system, and you pour, I don't know, arsenic around the base, you pour some sort of poison beneath its branches, in time, what will happen? Even if the soil initially was good, the tree will collapse because it can't deal with the poison it's received. Every age of the church has had soil, in some cases that's better, in some cases that's worse. Every age of the church has had poison introduced to individual congregations and denominations and institutions as a whole. None of this is new. With that said, if you look back at all the heresies, if you look back at all the heresies that have ever been espoused, you know what's interesting? Heresy across the centuries it usually starts with this basic premise. If you look at heresies that have crept into Christianity, here's the premise. The premise is, okay, what we've got here is pretty good. It's a pretty good understanding of God and his son and the like. However, we need to consider this nuance, this new teaching, this hip new presupposition we've got about God or man. And if we introduce this concept or this idea, not only will it help us to understand God better, but, you know, it might make us more relevant to the people around us if we take, you know, this good start, this good start we've been given, and we build on that. We build on that with some additional thoughts. As time has gone by, we certainly know more of what we're doing in the church, right? God is not static. God has given us a sense of how to grow, and sometimes how to grow involves doing things differently than what we used to do. Heresy. This is not the way that it works. In first century closet. The heresies were twofold. First of all, there was a strain of something called Judaic legalism. The rest of chapter 2 deals with it. You can fall off the horse in both directions. You can become a legalist in a way that absolutely subverts Scripture, or you can become an antinomian. You can be one who has no place for the law in your understanding of the gospel. Well, in Colossae, there was a strain of legalism, which chapter 2 deals with. There was also a strain of secular philosophy that was poisoning the flock. This is what Paul's speaking to. He knows the people there are good people. He has reason to believe that the seed is good and the soil is good, and yet he knows people are coming with seasoning or with poison in order to mess things up. When they do so, in his day or in our day, the idea is this, that if we just tweak things a little bit, you know, a few bells and whistles, what we'll do will be even more palatable to the world around us. It's a siren song that has been played for thousands of years. And you can hear it. If you cup your ear, you can hear it in the world around us and the churches around us to this day. Well, the Apostle Paul has the same advice for the Colossians as he does for us. Make sure that the voices speaking into the church are good and true and rooted on Christ and his word. Okay, let's look at our remaining verses, verses 8 through 10. Beware, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Notice here he's not saying beware of Caesar, beware of the enemy, beware of the state, beware of persecution from outside these doors. That's not what he's saying you need to principally beware of. He says beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, through man-made, man-centered philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You know, all religious teachings only have two sources, ultimately. It's either God or it's man. All religious teachings ultimately emanate from one or two sources, either God or man. Now, when a good and a perfect and an all-knowing God speaks, then what he declares is good and perfect. When a good and perfect God speaks, what he says is accurate. What he says is true. Now, that doesn't mean you'll like it equally. 
But it doesn't change the fact that if a good and a perfect God opens his mouth to say something, then what he says will be good and perfect. So you could turn to that. If you want to know the purpose of life, if you want to know about existence, you want to ask all the deep questions, you could turn to him, as I suggest you do. Or, or alternately, you could look to man. You could look to sinful, fallen people that in many cases are as weak and silly and stupid as we are and say, hey, what do you think? What do you think? And when I think we add it all up, we'll come up with some good understanding of the world around us. If you ask fallen, sinful men to tell you reality, you'll get a fallen and sinful answer. So with that said, in these last verses, what Paul is saying, is he's saying, consider the source. He's saying, dear heavens, you have spent so many years of your life reading the opinion pages, the editorials in institutions and settings that know not God, and he says, consider the source. He says, beware, lest anyone cheat you. This is a volitional thing. It's not like accident. Oh, I accidentally misled you. Here, there's a suggestion that there is an active volitional cheating that's going on to deprive Christian hearts and minds. Beware, lest anyone cheat you according to the traditions of men, according to the principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Consider the source, is what he's saying. He's saying you got all manner of things hitting your eardrums and your brain pan. Consider the source for where those things come from. I know some of our young people are gone this morning, but whether it's they or anyone else here in the room today, if you're young, there's all manner of celebrities, athletes, influencers who try to tell you the truth about life and love and marriage and gender and the like. There's all manner of professors, politicians, people in the media do the same thing. Each is attempting to persuade you. Again, you're being discipled by someone. You're either the discipler or the disciplee. There's all manner of voices that are speaking truth, air quotes, into your life. They're attempting to persuade you to take whatever worldview you got today and stuff it like a Thanksgiving goose with something else, with other beliefs. But here's the thing. If you have discernment, then you'll recognize that most of the time what is being sold to you is the 21st century equivalent of magic beans. If someone, if someone on Instagram with eight nose rings wants to tell you the cosmic answers to the universe, I suggest you find a different source. I suggest you look elsewhere. I suggest you look to something that, oh, I don't know, is a little more timeless and comes from a transcendent seed of authority. Again, this seems like it should be intuitive, especially to us as Christians, but it really isn't. Especially, again, with our young folks. You know, young folks, here's the thing. They're not in the room today, so I guess I can talk about them. Young folks have this ability, this incredible ability and tendency to nod their head to propositional truth, to say amen in church and in other settings where it's expected of them, and at the same time to take that and put it as just one other competing interest on the bookshelf of their lives, all manner of other input that's coming in. They have this incredible ability to affirm propositional truth while not necessarily internalizing it, let alone applying it. It's not just youth, it's all of us. Again, Paul's not just talking to Hicks 2,000 years ago. He's talking to all of us. We are inclined to do things that we ought not do and to believe things that we ought not believe. And so we should question our presuppositions and we can question the sources that are speaking thoughts into our lives. And the word here is beware. This is what Paul says. He says beware. Now, in order to beware, you've got to what? You've got to be aware. In order to beware of anything, you need to be aware that it's a danger. In this case, beware. There is a danger. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of man, the principles of the world, and not according to Christ. All right, since our time is somewhat limited this morning, let's look to wrap up. There's an old saying, you've heard it before, that a frog will cook to death in a kettle so long as you turn the heat up in increments. 
I've never tried this, but we got a lot of frogs. You know, we live near the swamp. We got a lot of frogs near us, and they are dumb as dumb can be. They won't get out of the way of cars, bikes, or just about anything where we live. Frogs are not that smart. With that said, if our culture were to be compared to a frog in a kettle, you know, with the heat getting turned up, the frog's dead at this point. If the culture war has already been fought, our culture is flatlining as we speak. However, I want you to notice something, something really important, and something you might miss if you're only focused to what's going on on the news and the media and the like. In today's text, I want you to notice the Apostle Paul wasn't concerned about culture. He wasn't concerned about government, the state, the nation, any of that. He didn't waste a single breath on those things. Instead, he was singularly concerned about the church. When he spoke to those people who were undergoing weird and wild hardships, we are clearly, in the world around us in this day, 21st century, North American Christianity, we clearly have some weird things going on in the world around us. Well, they did then too, but he didn't speak to that. He could have, but that's not his focus. He didn't speak to the culture, he spoke to the church. That's where his focus was. You know, as long as the spiritual sons of Cain outnumber the spiritual sons of Abel, as long as the prince of the power of the air has jurisdiction over this world, the culture is always going to be fraught with evil and wickedness and the like. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't minister into culture. Of course we should. We should have a leavening and seasoning effect. Absolutely, this is true. But the culture is not the bride. The culture around us will never be mistaken in the economy of God for the bride of Christ. The church is. The church is the bride, and that bride is under attack. For those with ears to hear, mark my words on this. In the future, the most confusing message that your children will hear will not come from politicians or uh, celebrities. It will come from clergy. In the future, the most confusing messages that your children and grandchildren will hear if the current trajectory remains unchanged, the most confusing messages they will hear will not necessarily be from the people you think are offering them, the politicians and celebrities and athletes and like. It will be from people standing in places like this. Now, if you read your Bibles, nothing I'm saying here is revolutionary. It sounds kind of awkward for me to say it as a pastor standing in front of us, but it's not, it's not unusual if you read your Bibles. 2 Corinthians, Apostle Paul says this is what would happen. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so... It is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The Apostle Peter was even more didactic in 1 Peter 2. He says, false prophets will arise from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who has brought them, bringing upon themselves destruction. Over the years, if you've ever wondered, if you've ever wondered why I don't waste my time up here speaking to the dangers of particular politicians or political parties, you know why that is? Well, there's more than one reason, but among them is this. I don't think that politicians and political parties are the ones you need to worry about. The ones we need to worry about in the greater evangelical church are those who seem to profess what we profess and yet who have leavened it, poised it in ways that are ultimately unhelpful and unsaving. The church of this age, I'll close with these thoughts, the church of this age desperately needs discernment. Desperately, desperately, desperately needs discernment. Have you ever come across a fake $20 bill? Now, how would you even know it? I'll bet you have come across a fake $20 bill, but I'll bet you didn't recognize it. Why? Because most of us are not trained in understanding it. But I'll bet you at some time, at some time or place, you've had a $20 bill in your possession, didn't even know it, you might have given it to someone else, passed it on and the like. Um, being unaware that it was counterfeit. Being well-intentioned as you paid someone with it. And not knowing that what you were giving them was not of any value. How do you know, those of you who have a $20 bill in your wallet right now, how do you know it's really real? 
Well, if you were to ask someone trained in banking or in loss prevention, if you were to ask them to tell you how do you detect a fake bill and the like, most experts in forgeries and like, what they'll tell you is this. They'll say, look, I don't need to study all of the thousands of different variations out there in order to stand what is counterfeit. What I need to study is the real deal. The more I become familiar with the feel, with the look, with the smell, of the contours of the paper, the more I become familiar with what the authentic thing looks like, the easier it is for me to recognize that which is false. You and I, we need discernment. We need discernment so we can understand that which is false, protect ourselves, protect our kids. We need discernment in these things. And the best way to attain this discernment is to study this, to study the Word of God. As we said before, the world outside our doors, it's only going to get weirder. At least it seems to be. The world inside, the evangelical world's getting pretty weird too. You don't need to know the names and contours of every heresy that exists in order to keep you and your family safe. But you do need to know the Word of God. Let's pray for the grace to do so. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.